Welcome to the Somatic Primer Podcast with Bryson, an ongoing cross-discipline dialogue of all things somatics. Hello, welcome to the Somatic Primer Podcast. I'm Bryson Newell, your host. On today's show, I had the pleasure to sit down with the yoga scholar, Dr. Jason Birch. Jason Birch is a scholar of medieval Hatha Yoga and a founding member of SOAS's Center for Yoga Studies. Jason is a senior research fellow for the Light on Hatha Yoga Project. He's well known for his important paper on the meaning of Hatha in early Hatha Yoga texts, which has reshaped our understanding of the origins of this term by locating it within Buddhist literature. Jason is the co-founder for the open access platform for yoga research, The Luminescent, and founding member of the peer-reviewed Journal for Yoga Studies. Uh, The Luminescent is an independent collaborative hub for scholars, researchers, teachers, and practitioners of yoga and I highly recommend it. Um, I will leave links in the show notes so that you can find more about Jason and the Luminescent. All right, and once again, I'd like to ask listeners to please consider supporting the show. Therefore, we really appreciate your donations to those listeners who are currently donating, and if you're not, please consider donating to the show. And go to the show notes, click on uh, somaticprimer.com, and I'll take you to our site, and you can make any donation of your choice. All right, so thank you for that, and without further ado, Professor Jason Birch. Hi, Bryson. How are you? Good. How are you? Good afternoon to you. Yes. Yeah, and good morning to you, isn't it? It's uh, early earlier there. So you're uh-huh. you're traveling all around. Yeah. Yeah, we are at the moment. Um, uh, we just did a workshop in the south of France. So because we traveled so far to get here, we're, we're now um, staying a bit longer just to enjoy the the area. Who's, who's we and what workshop are you doing? Uh, we were we were doing a, a workshop for the for the Light on Hutter project, which which we've been working on for uh, over two years now. It's a it's a project. That's a collaboration between SOAS, University of London, and Marburg University, and we've been editing uh, the Hatha Pradipika for the last, uh, um, as I say, two and a half years. And we have to meet every now and again to read what we've done in person and with with specialists. So, so we just did that for a week um, recently, and I'm travelling with my wife, Jacqueline Hargreaves. So um so, so that's why i said we oh okay i didn't know if it was like your team of uh researchers or just oh yeah i wish i had a team of researchers that that <laughs> that, that would be uh, uh that would that would be great yes i could certainly delegate um, well, I, lots lots of work uh to various people i always um, put you malison and singleton in kind of a group i know it's more than that or less than that but i always sort of associate you three Yes, well, we were from 2015 to 2020 when we were working on the Hatha Yoga project. Um, And since then, Jim and myself have continued to work with each other because of the Light on Hatha project and another project called the Yoga Chintamani. Uh, Mark has sort of gone into semi-retirement, so he's he's not so active um, 
anymore, but I do sort of keep in contact with him privately. Um, so yeah, so he's oh he's... young for that, isn't he? Um, well, I I think that he's focusing more on um, growing his own food and uh, and 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 writing a couple of um, books that he's been working on for a while. Um, he's yeah not formally engaged in academia or uh, or any projects as far as I know. And uh, and and so what are you up to? You you um you run a obviously a platform that does podcasts and. Uh, and various things. So, so you, have you been doing that for a while? Yeah. The, I've been working on this for about two years now. And that's the, it's the interview side of things that I called somatic primer, which was part of a larger platform called Vigil method where I teach somatics and meditation and, you know, somatics is a broader concept of bodily practices. So I really appreciated your work when it came out on Hatha. Um, help us contextualize what that means and its connections to, to Buddhism, as you said. Yes, I suppose it depends what uh, you know uh, type of yoga you're doing. Perhaps we've we've had a lot of interest from the yoga sort of world, if you like, or the yoga community, um, and it tends to be longer term practitioners who teach yoga and also practitioners who've perhaps gone to India and um, taken an interest in uh, the history through through what various gurus and uh, institutions have have said. I think also transnational styles of yoga, these are sort of styles that still have a connection with a tradition in India or a guru in India of some sort. Uh, they tend to use, they, they tend to refer to the texts and a lot of the terminology, particularly Sanskrit terminology when they, when they teach. So people who learn those types of yoga and have exposure to publications and teachings from, from, um, from those styles tend to tend to have more interest in the, in the uh, history. Of course, the, the sort of more globalized yoga that, that's, broken away in a sense or, or or is now developing without such a strong um, reference to India and past traditions of yoga in India there that perhaps the interest the interest in history is not so apparent and for many people not uh, really an issue because they when they practice or when they attend classes it's probably never brought up very much so there's there's this idea though with words and terminology and traditions especially for like new students like you're getting into this and you don't really know you something's called hatha and you have an interest and then you know something else is kind of presented um where so anyways you're the expert so i wanted to sort of talk to you about what exactly is hatha um thanks well hatha yoga is a is a type of yoga that emerged around the uh, 11th, 12th century in India. And it referred to um, a practice primarily of, well, we think of physical techniques that forced uh, prana, vital energy within the body, to move into the central channel. Um, and then over time, it was, you know, this idea of force was, reinterpreted in in different ways either referring to the forceful effect that this yoga had on um 
Apanavayu, that's the sort of the wind in the lower abdomen that generally moves down. And by moving it up uh, forcefully, it, uh, it then unites with prana and causes and generates a lot of heat within the body. Uh, or it could refer to the forceful effect that this type of yoga had on Kundalini, the sort of goddess sleeping at the at the uh, base of the central channel, her mouth covering and blocking the central channel, which then prevents prana from moving in and up. So the yogi has to has to wake her up usually through hatha yoga. She's sort of forcefully seized and um, shaken and or, 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 or struck like a um, like a snake struck by a stick. Uh, and then she wakes up, her mouth comes off the, the central channel, and then, of course, the central channel's open so that prana can move uh, upwards. Uh, so I think that's a fairly consistent theme in the earlier, in the earlier texts. Um, and it's really, it's physical techniques that manipulate the breath within the body and other vital energies. Uh, and these physical techniques in the very beginning or in the earliest form that we have, were called mudras or seals. And the basic practice consisted of three seals called Mahamudra, Mahabandha, and Mahaveda. And the first Mahamudra was done in a sort of asymmetrical seated position with one leg straight, the other, the other leg bent at the knee and the heel pressing against the perineum. The yogi would uh, breathe in hold the breath and apply what's called a chin lock or Jalandhara Bandha. And that's sort of pressing the chin down onto the chest. The, the, the next technique, um, Mahaveda, was either done in that position or in a cross-legged position uh, where the yogi would again breathe in and apply not only the chin lock, but then also the root lock, Mula Bandha. And so this was supposed to, um, this is sort of like clenching the perineum, which is then supposed to uh, push prana up into the central channel. And the third technique is uh, Mahaveda, which is done either in a sort of squatting type position or a seated position. The yogi places the hands either side of the hips, um, takes a breath in, applies the chin lock, and then lifts the hips up and down so that they tap against the, the heel and the ground. Uh, while holding the breath and that's supposed to forcefully push prana up through the central channel so that it uh, pierces various uh, well three basic obstructions within the central channel these are called knots grunties that are uh, at the navel and perhaps the heart and the throat the, the location is not specified in the early early text but they're somewhere within the central channel and at that point when they're pierced and prana goes up through the through the um, central channel to the top, various res internal resonances start to arise. At first, they're quite uh, gross sounds like uh, pounding drums and, uh, um, and, and, and loud bells and so forth. But then as the prana moves higher and higher, the sounds become subtler and subtler. Uh, and this results eventually particularly as the yogi yogi's mind becomes absorbed in these sounds, results in Raja Yoga, which is a, a state of meditative, deep meditative absorption, where there's no thinking, breathing, or physical movement. And it's Raja Yoga, which can be understood as a, a, the, the sovereign yoga, or the yoga that's king of all yogas, the best of all yogas. 
that then enabled the yogi to become liberated from transmigration, liberated from the world of birth, birth and death. So much to say there. So, and the, so this is happening around the 11th century. So we can say in, there's a move towards the body a bit. There's an embodiment aspect mm. of the meditation that starts to happen. Do we know why? Like why this sudden change or shift? Or is it sudden? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, physical techniques um, have been used in India for for thousands of years, I think, before the 11th and 10th century, mainly to generate uh, tapas. That's a sort of internal heat that was that was believed to then result in various powers, even powers over over the gods to bestow various uh, boons and rewards. Um, but these these physical techniques tended to be um, uh, quite ascetic in the sense that, that that they often were difficult to practice and could even harm the body. What we sort of see in the 11th and 12th century with Hatha Yoga is techniques that have a forceful effect, say on Kundalini, but uh, but don't necessarily harm the body. In fact, they're, they're supposed to cure various illnesses. Um, the idea being that illnesses are an obstacle to yoga because if you're sick, you can't practice. And practice, abhyasa is really the sort of central, one of the central foundations of just about all yoga systems. It requires a sort of um, a daily or regular practice of some sort, uh, usually involving the breath or the mind to achieve uh, the goal, liberation. Uh, so curing illness is very important if it requires, you know, if 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 it stops the yogi from practicing. And these physical techniques were, uh, in just about all cases, said to cure um, uh, many different diseases. Yeah. So the so the tapas, as far as like the heat, that was already there for a long, long time. You're saying, but it was an ascetic thing, and it could harm the body. This is kind of like the Buddha. Before he was enlightened, he had harmed the body as a yogi and gone through all these rigorous practices. And then he said, though, no, the middle way. That's right. Yes. Yeah, so he rejected a lot of those uh, ascetic techniques, uh, such as fasting, um, holding the breath. Um, and there were others. Uh, I'm not sure if Buddha tried them, but uh, such as hanging upside down from trees, uh, sitting sitting amid, amidst the five fires for sort of cow dung fires on the ground and the sun being the the fifth fire that was a sort of another um iconic if you like um uh, method of asceticism standing on one leg holding one arm up until it withers away these these sort of practices have a long tradition within india and they're never really considered to be part of hatha yoga um so i think the the shift that we see with physical yoga in general is is the adoption of physical practices that were seen to be beneficial yeah. uh, to the body they they seem to really resonate or have a lot in common with at the time i think was called Taoyin in in china or and and then later and then i think at the same time frame we see moving into tibet and then salong and it seems like that also just kind of comes from but but it's this sense of inner network of channels where there's the the bodies perceived as like these channels and i mean the parallels are uncanny i've, I've always mm. thought something coming from china because it's like in the india it's appearing um but 
you know, then it obviously seems like I think Malison's work with the Amrita city is saying that it did go into India and becomes maybe Salong. I don't know. Maybe you could clarify that. No, yes, please. there there has been recent scholarship on possible parallels between um, Chinese systems and uh, and Hatha Yoga, Indian Hatha Yoga, and because the Chinese systems are much earlier, um, the you know the the direction of borrowing or the direction of travel seems to be from China uh, to India, and there are certainly similarities, as you say, and other scholars have pointed this out. Uh, what I'm sort of waiting for is a is a scholar who's f familiar with uh, the Chinese literature can read Chinese, as well as you know can can look at the primary sources in India, and we certainly see scholars in Buddhism, sort of working this way. They've they've managed to sort of master Chinese as well as Sanskrit and Tibetan other languages, who can sort of sit down with the material and see not only the similarities, because there are some very general similarities that you see even in translation, but also start to point out some of the differences so that we can get a, a clearer understanding of, of, um, of just whether, whether they are related or whether there's sort of some, some coincidental uh, you know, similarities, or perhaps there may have been some interaction at a much earlier time that then you know the systems started to diverge or go in different directions by the time we start to see them codified in texts um because i certainly do see a lot of differences um, um and i think also there's there's strong evidence for interaction between china and india the fact that uh, in some of the chinese sources from what i understand um brahmins or, or a brahmanical form of yoga is mentioned in some of these sources um, we don't get references to china in indian yoga texts um, but uh, and and the references in these chinese texts are quite early they sort of predate hatha yoga by many centuries um, but it's 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 certainly an area i think that's that deserves a lot more research and a lot of careful analysis to sort of try and uh, assess um, both the similarities and the differences between the two traditions. Yeah, I don't, and I don't think you find the the three channels, which would define kind of hatha. You don't, I, I've not seen that in Chinese. So I see the channels and I see energy work and I even see a form of like internal heat, like what would, you know, tumo or something, the alchemical mm. stuff, but the three channel network and then working with these three knots, that, that mm. I don't. I, that I don't see. That seems to be quite a big difference and fundamental to Hatha. Yes. I mean, it's there in the Amrita City, uh, the Buddhist uh, Tantra that teaches some of the physical techniques that later became part of Hatha Yoga. Um, and I think what we see when we look at, say, the Amrita City and the Amaralga, a Shaiva text that also contains uh, the same physical methods as the Amrita City and then calls them or integrates them into a larger system of yoga as a practice called Hatha. Um, what we see is, is definitely a strong interaction between sh older Shaiva Tantric traditions and terminology as well as Vajrayana works. So I think that I think Hatha and the early texts uh, are always the result of a sort of synthetic process um, taking ideas from earlier tantric traditions both shaiva and buddhist and bringing them together to to sort of form 
a practice and a theory that um, uh, that, that, that sort of holds to, holds together, but but mainly, you know, a lot of the theory is is not um, uh, comprehensive or even coherent. A lot of the theory is just there, I think, to explain the basic techniques to a practitioner, and in some ways to to sort of justify why they might be doing them. Um, yes, so very, it's very syncretic. And I think Shaivism contributed a lot. The three channels, for instance, uh, are certainly found in earlier Shaiva works um, and probably some earlier Buddhist Vajrayana works. And as scholars like Alexis Sanderson and others have, have shown both earlier Shaiva and Buddhist tantric traditions were interacting and uh, borrowing material uh, from each other to sort of, um, uh, you know, form their... Uh, um, their theology and, and, and ritual. Yeah. So, and I, I love the communication of all these different groups. That's what I find so interesting about, well, just India in general, but these different traditions, this, this conversation and this progression that's constantly happening. I, I think it's so interesting. Mm. And you brought up Vajrayana. Um, and so one of these three postures you call the Mahamudra, um, so those like the 87 Mahasiddhis, these Vajrayana Mahasiddhis are all practicing a type of meditation, Mahamudra, that makes its way into Tibet that is connected with Salong. Like these two things are connected. It's like you're doing the the, the fivefold path or whatever different practices of Mahamudra and Salong is definitely a companion practice. Um, but it wasn't always there. I don't think in the early Mahasiddhis they were doing Mahamudra. But then, like I think you said, eighth, seventh, eighth, ninth century, the the postures of Hatha come up, and so could you talk about that progression a little bit? As far as the history of yoga postures is concerned, there's a sort of a again a very long prehistory for many of the seated postures before Hatha yoga comes into being. Um, so Padmasana, um, uh, Virasana, and many others are found in classical texts such as you know the Mahabharata and the Patanjali Yoga Shastra uh, particularly the commentary on the Patanjali Yoga Shastra um, names I think 12 or 13 different postures and Padmasana, Virasana and many of the others are in there and according to Shankara's commentary most of those postures are seated postures. Of course what, what we start to get in Hatha Yoga but but really from the it's a sort of a later development, I think, from the 14th or 15th century onwards, we start to get the incorporation of non-seated postures, postures that are not sort of cross-legged on the ground or even kneeling, but say balancing on the hands, uh, twisting the spine quite uh, um, you know, to one side or the other, uh, bending forward, such as in Paschimottanasana. Uh, these postures start to creep in to yoga traditions around maybe the um, 10th, 11th century, but it, but in very, according to the textual literature in a very small way, we really only have evidence for Mayurasana, the peacock pose, and Kukutasana in, say, the Vasishta Samitara, 12th century yoga text, and possibly an earlier Vaishnava work that dates perhaps a little bit before then. Um, 
and and that's all that's really taught in terms of non-seated poses the rest the rest of the postures are seated and that makes sense seeing the emphasis was on uh, pranayama holding the breath in different ways and meditation but then it's really with the hatha pradipika this 15th century hatha yoga text that, that sort of creates a, a blueprint uh, or a paradigm if you like for the practice of physical yoga that that really endured right through to the modern period uh, it's in that text that asana starts to become an auxiliary practice of hatha um, so instead of the emphasis being just on pranayama and mudras mudras also including these uh, locks such as the chin lock and the root lock that i mentioned earlier um, you also start to get postures being listed as as a necessary part of the practice so the hatha pradipika lists 15 postures eight of them are seated and seven are non-seated including mayurasana and kukutasana matsyandrasana is the twist and paschimottanasana is the is the forward bend for example um, and then it's after that time really from the 16th 17th and 18th century onwards where we start to get more and more postures being added up to you know collections of 84 which is the canonical number that we see mentioned at an earlier time as uh, as, as as sort of being a collection of asanas taught by shiva uh through to you know other larger numbers of 112 um and and so forth so i think the development of a rigorous asana practice if you like in yoga is a sort of a more recent um, development when we look at the history of hatha say starting from the 12th century i don't think it was it was really being done uh, in any sort of elaborate or sophisticated way perhaps until the 15th or 16th century i mean it could have been done in other traditions uh, perhaps ascetic traditions or um uh, possibly even wrestling or other traditions but it just wasn't accepted as being important for yoga until perhaps the 15th or 16th century yeah so yeah i'm sorry and i didn't mean the the posture so i meant like working with like the channels like that in the hatha like when you're using this internal framework and i'm i'm, I'm just always curious about this posture mahamudra when you have the, a really massive Mahamudra tradition running through the Mahasiddhi tradition? With Mahamudra in the Buddhist tradition, and I looked into this to some extent for my, um, for, for my work on the Amanaskar, the, the evidence for a physical practice that's similar to the Mahamudra that we see in the Amrita Siddhi and the Amarauga, um, I wasn't really able to find. Mahamudra in many contexts in Vajrayana, of course, is referring to um, a meditative state um, and it was of course relevant to my work on the Amanaskar which is a text that teaches a no mind state um, that has a lot of terminology some of it coming from Vajrayana traditions um, the, some of which of course taught Mahamudra um, but I think the earliest evidence that we have for these you know uh, for the sort of practice of Mahamudra that involves bandhas these internal muscular locks in a non-seated position with with breath retention and so forth that's then that then leads to Mahabandha and Mahamudra um, would be the yoga texts that I've mentioned 
And of course, the Amrita Siddhi was was um, translated into Tibet. So those techniques undoubtedly went uh, went to Tibet, I think, by the um, 11th century, which is the manuscript, the oldest manuscript that we have for that text contains uh, Tibetan transliteration as well as Tibetan translation. And it's dated. So we know that it was obviously um, uh, that it obviously traveled to Tibet um, by by the end of the 11th century. So that's that's a very early period. And from what I understand, it also resulted in a cycle of teaching. So there are other um, smaller texts within the Tibetan Buddhist canon uh, that uh, that relate to the teachings of the Amrita Siddhi in in different ways. And one of those texts, of course, has been translated by Peter Santo and was published um, with Jim uh, James Mallinson in their in their book on the Amrita Siddhi. I think it was called the Amrita Siddhi Mulla. So it's a sort of mullery, I suppose, in the sense of um, root or foundation of the Amrita Siddhi teachings, perhaps. Yeah. So the when you so when what was the text and what was the reference to it that you when your first citation of this word hatha that comes up in the literature? Well, the earliest references that I that I found were in Buddhist Vajrayana works. Um, the Guya Samaja Tantra, which I think's in its current form, or at least the second half of it is dated to the late 8th century, mentions Hatha Yoga. It doesn't define it, so the meaning of it there is ambiguous. Mm. Um, but it's really in the Kala Chakra Tantra and related texts um, that date to around the 11th and 12th century that we start to get um, definitions of Hatha yoga within the Vajrayana tradition um, that that tell us more about what what the practice involved and so forth. And and so what was it referring to? Do you know? Oh yes. So in 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 the Kala Chakra Tantra, it's it's a part of a, a sexual um, a ritual uh, that involves um, uh, preventing semen from um, from uh, being ejaculated into into the yogi's consort while they're having uh, sex, and it also involves the practice of internal resonance, although that's not really um, elaborated upon. Mm -hmm. um, and we know from other Vajrayana works that there was a sort of a, a, a sort of a complex yoga that in a complex sort of sexual yoga, if you like, that involved a series of different void-like meditative states uh, called shunyas, different uh, levels of bliss and different sort of sounds that related uh, to these levels. And we're also sort of related to a system of moments within, within uh, uh, Vajrayana that, uh, that was probably part of Hatha Yoga. And there are also some explanations of Hatha as... Um, as a reversal of this sequence of moments that that appears in some tantric texts in a particular order, but then in another order where the last two are reversed, it's called hutta. Mm -hmm. um, so yes, yeah, so it's very much caught up within that. But what we see in the Amrita Siddhi and the Amaralga, of course, is uh, is a form of hatha yoga that doesn't involve any any sex. Uh, it doesn't involve the four moments. 
It involves some of the void-like meditative states, blisses and sounds, um, but it's but it's a sort of a much simplified uh, system, if you like. But, and this is always a little a little odd, right? Because Vajrayana is Buddhist, and now we're saying monks, and but now there's sexual intercourse. There's something different happening. So, uh, what is it seems it seems like the the lines aren't so clear between all these traditions at these times between like Shaiva, Hatha, Buddhist, Vajra. Like, can we really be? Does it seem like it was more fluid, maybe, and people were just using practices, and some people from the outside were putting labels on, or like what? What's your view of this time? It seems so fluid. And to break so many traditional rules. Yes, well, I, you know, Tantra has a, a strong transgressive aspect to it. Um, you know, transcending standard levels of purity uh, mm. and morality to sort of understand that there's that there's a reality beyond that. Mm. So to me, it it it's it's um, it 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 just follows that the practice would also adopt that uh, tendency, you know, to sort of um, embrace transgressive practices mm -hmm. um, that, that would um, outrage or discuss the orthodoxy. Mm -hmm. um, but there was something, yes, but there was something I wanted to mention about an earlier part in your comment. Um, it's just slipped my mind sorry um in reference to what oh you mentioned something about um the fluidity mm. um but anyway maybe maybe we'll have to come oh, these to people it. were like so the buddhist thing is odd or the monastic thing is odd because it's like well why continue to call yourself a buddhist yes yes the buddha yes the buddhist thing about to um uh, the monastic life. So I think it's it's quite clear from the Amrita Siddhi and other Buddhist sources that celibacy was was an important um, priority. You know, so even if they did engage in sexual practice, um, drawing semen upwards rather than letting it uh, flow down is a strong emphasis within the Amrita Siddhi. In a forthcoming book that, 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 on the Amarauga, which is really where we see the same physical practices and some of the same theory with the, with the void-like meditative states and blisses and uh, um, uh, sounds and so forth, um, there I think the emphasis on celibacy is not so strong. And that perhaps relates back to earlier Shaiva traditions where um, sexual rights and um, even uh, um, orgasmic rituals, if you like, uh, did not necessarily um, involve celibacy. In fact, it was more about um, acquiring sexual fluids to then offer offer them to a deity. Um, and what I think we we see in the Amaralga is we certainly see the mention of nectar. But there it goes back to the old Shaiva tantric tradition of flooding the body with nectar rather than conserving it. Uh, and this is something that I argue for in, in, in my book on the Amaralga, that really in the early Shaiva Hatha texts, the emphasis on celibacy and retention of 
Bindu is is not not so strong, certainly not as strong as what we see in the Amrita city. It sort of slowly starts to creep in perhaps around the 14th and 15th century with practices such as Vadroli, Vadroli Mudra, where um, after the practice of sex, the yogi is able to reabsorb or suck up, if you like, um, uh, semen along with uh, a woman's female sexual fluids through a hydraulic, an internal hydraulic method, um, as well as the practice of kirchari, which, which is where the tongue is placed up into the nasal pharyngeal cavity. And so the, um, so not only is the nectar in the, in the head um, retained because it can't drip down through the central channel into the, in, into the fire of the abdomen, it, it's also supposed to be able to block um, it's also supposed to be able to result in celibacy. So it does creep in, and there we see it codified in the Hatha Pradipika with Vadroli Mudra and um, Kechari. But a lot of the earlier Shaiva texts teaching Hatha Yoga do not teach uh, Vadroli Mudra, and they don't teach Kechari, or if they do, they don't mention um, the, the retention of, of semen. Yeah. I mean, this is a big theme in China. The retention of Chinese medicine, Daoyin. I mean, that's a big idea there where they're kind of crazy about it. Right. Yes. And I think, you know, in, in Buddhism, in a monastic setting, yeah. it's quite, uh, you know, it's quite strong as well. Yeah. In early Shaiva tantric traditions, I don't think there's a strong emphasis on on celibacy and then, from what I understand. Well, and then there's a there's a difference between like the celibacy and then like engaging with it in this kind of alchemical way. Um, right. And then I wonder, I've always wondered like how much of this is literal and how much is metaphorical? Like how much is this is supposed to be like just meta, you know, turning away from the world and internally visualizing and working, like you said, flooding your body, like wouldn't flooding the body be like, well, holding on to it. So then, then I flood my body. I keep it instead of like this external, like, cause we're taught even like early different yoga and, and Buddhist teachings, like you know, we turn internal, like there's a shift, there's a reverse. Normally our senses are going out and grabbing at things. And even in Tibetan, like the word for Buddhist, they call it nangla, like insider, like you, you flip it, mm. bring everything back in, you retain. And, and that's a big theme also in the Chinese alchemical practices where there's this internal retention, but it's of all the sensory organs. Well, I mean, yes, the, the practice of samadhi is basically an introspective practice where you're turning the senses around um, from the outside world to look uh, to look within. That's undoubtedly the case. There's a strong introspectiveness. In terms of, you know, celibacy and retaining sexual fluids, um, I don't see a strong emphasis on that in earlier Shaiva texts of, uh, of, of Hatha Yoga. What I see, though, is that retention was accepted as incidental to the practice of Raja Yoga. So I think when, when I think they believe that when the yogi attained the highest state, which is you know, a profound state of meditation, that celibacy and the retention of fluids probably followed naturally. That in other words, you didn't need to necessarily practice um, Vajroli Mudra or practice celibacy um, uh, before that, in 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 order to in order to achieve um, uh, raj yoga, that you could you know practice the mudras, the asanas, and the and, and the breathing techniques 
um, Raja Yoga would would follow, and then um, retention would uh, retention would 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 uh, ensue. Um, so the Saiva tradition is not a monastic tradition, then I take it. So I don't know much about the Saiva tradition. Well, it was but the, the, very well. I, again, I think the audience for Hatha Yoga was much broader than just ascetics. So certainly ascetics might well have been practicing um, uh, celibacy. That may have been uh, what was expected of them. It may have been their ideal. Um, but I think it probably, well, it would have also involved householders. As we see in the, the Dattatreya Yoga Shastra, there's a sort of a, a range of people that are mentioned as um, uh, uh, a sort of possible audience uh, for, for its techniques. And the reason for that is because I think essentially Hatha Yoga was an auxiliary practice. It didn't require that, you know, a Buddhist, a Shaiva um, or a Brahmin change their religious practice, you know, in order to be initiated into a sect and, 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 and start to practice Hatha Yoga. Hatha Yoga was more something that they would do on the side. So they would continue to do their normal religious practice, live their life as they, as they, as they had been brought up and then practice Hatha Yoga on the side in order to achieve liberation in life. So for many, that was quite quite appealing because, for example, if you're an, orth an Orthodox Brahmin, you would practice ritual throughout your life, and then at death you would be liberated. But with the practice of Hatha Yoga, the appeal was that you could do these this um, uh, auxiliary practice in addition to your normal ritual, uh, daily ritual uh, life, and that would bring about liberation much faster, as well as, of course, the reward of um, various powers that were uh, seen by some to be uh, um, particularly uh, appealing. So, so yes, I think that was it. Was probably a much broader um, group within the yeah, Shaiva communities that were practicing or could practice Hatha Yoga. All you really needed was a guru who'd mastered the practice. Um, and initiation is never really mentioned as necessary for Hatha Yoga. That doesn't mean that some gurus, you know, didn't initiate their students, but it means that there was certainly not a consensus that initiation was necessary for the practice of Hatha. Whereas, of course, if you're, you know, for someone going into a Buddhist monastic tradition or a tantric sect or, um, or another religious order, then, um, initiation or adopting a particular code of practice or life that may have involved celibacy, um, you know, could have been part of it, but I don't think it was uh, for Hatha Yoga. Yeah. So, so tell me, let me see if I kind of have a picture here. So it seems like this technology, if you will, we have meditation and then we have the Hatha Yoga as a auxiliary practice. It's kind of, floating around and then different groups are using it in mm. in different yes. but it's essentially kind of a similar and and the goal is kind of the same but the interpretations might vary slightly depending on who you are yes that's right and various techniques were added and subtracted mm -hmm. um, but generally over the course of centuries more and more techniques were were added so the, the texts we get from the 15th, 16th, and 17th century contain a much broader array 
of techniques than the early ones, such as the three that I mentioned before in the Amarauga. Yeah. That basic uh, set of three mudras becomes a set of ten mudras in the Hatha Pradipika and later texts. The 15 asanas of the Hatha Pradipika, as I mentioned, become uh, sets of 84 or more postures. And it's the same with pranayamas and and, and other techniques. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it seems like there was like a couple hundred years where this was very more, much more fluid. And then it goes up into different areas because there was a big disruption in India, right? around the 14th century 13 14th century there was an invasion in the north north india with yeah. yes islamic invasions and so forth absolutely it was would have been a very turbulent time and i think perhaps one reason that hatha yoga spread as quickly as it did was it was a sort of very easy technique to communicate it it, it uh, didn't require the learning of a complex doctrine mm-hmm. um or uh, um, uh, you know much sophistication beyond learning the physical techniques and of course the physical techniques could be practiced and understood with very basic theory so I think it was easy relatively easy to learn and also easy to transmit the texts that we have are very basic you know it didn't require Mm. um, huge compendiums or philosophical works Mm-hmm. to um, um, preserve and transmit um, physical systems of yoga. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so I think that's that's probably one reason why. And as I say, it was also an auxiliary practice. So that gave people a lot of freedom to keep practicing their own religious traditions, but then take on board something that was considered to be very effective yeah. for achieving liberation in life but also had other benefits such as curing illnesses achieving supernatural powers and so forth yeah yeah you find and so back to china you know a lot of the population was illiterate and so through these embodied practices or little forms they were often taught through poetry you know you would remember them by animal names or something and they were passed on and, and i would imagine the same in india the population was not probably mostly literate besides the the brahmins that's right yes in sanskrit um and so the text you know the the teachings would have been transmitted orally undoubtedly and that's mentioned in the text so the textual tradition sort of developed um with an awareness of the oral tradition and i suppose it would have been vice versa um within a group if one person can read sanskrit then they would be able to convey um, the teachings to the rest of the group uh, and I think also the texts were probably written in Sanskrit because it gave them a greater status, you know, gave this type of yoga greater kudos, mm-hmm. if you like, amongst uh, other traditions of, of Sanskrit literature and learning. Um, wasn't there a bit of a, so if we fast forward to like Krishnamacharya, wasn't there a bit of a rub between him and these traditions? Like they wanted to go back to the Patanjali and they sort of looked at Hatha yoga practitioners or the sadhus and stuff like the nathas is kind of like dirty and beneath them where they were a little he's, more learned they didn't certainly yes yes yeah there was probably um there was you know certainly um uh what would you say certainly a different interpretation of hatha yoga going on from krishnamacharya and others 
so he he did from what i understand didn't accept uh, many of the mudras such as vadroli mudra that that required um sure. uh, the practice of sex or the loss of semen uh, you know to be practiced um and as far as i'm aware he, he also didn't particularly like the shut karma i'm not sure if that had anything to do with purity but apparently he didn't teach it nor when he was reading the Hatha would he teach that section yeah. to his students. Um, so for an Orthodox Brahmin, it's, it's probably not, uh, um, you know, that those practices that involve the genitals and so forth are probably not something that they're so interested in. In a 17th century compendium called the Yoga Chintamani, which is written by a very learned Vedantan uh, sannyasi philosophy, he leaves out Vadroli Mudra and says that it's a it's a practice of the Kapalikas and uh, sort of has no place within within his discourse on yoga. And so I suppose that Krishnamacharya saw it the same way. And like um, Shivananda, who wrote this compendium, the Yoga Chintamani in the 17th century, Krishnamacharya also uh, prioritized the um, yoga sutras and spoke at length about Patanjali's yoga and in a sense tried to bring Hatha yoga together with Patanjali's yoga by um, by seeing Hatha as 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 uh, um, the uh, as a sort of specialized yoga that elaborates upon the practice of asana and pranayama within Patanjali's eightfold scheme of Ashtanga yoga um you know which has yama niyama asana pranayama but then also uh pratyahara um dharana dhyana and samadhi and so shivananda sarasvati and krishna macharya probably saw hatha yoga as being more relevant to um asana and pranayama well i i, I always just admit like you know we were saying like the embodied practices and the there's always like a kind of rub between like the the learned or the ruling class and then the the lower classes with the practices and stuff and so i see these you know more detailed scholarly texts and then the other group doesn't really have a voice in society so much like even though they might be more practitioners or the the ones who are really keeping holders of the practice that they're not the ones who have any power in society and especially during this time with it, with England being there, you know, the British rule, there's this, mm. there's this move to look, we're sophisticated. We have a very old tradition and philosophy. We're also learned and there's a sense of, but this other part of our society, that's not who we are. Mm. Yes. There's a sort of an elitism, you know, emerges of course in the colonial period. And, that's you know when we look at a sophisticated compendium like Shivananda's Yoga Chintamani, that was certainly written for the learned Brahmin, the learned um, pundit who could read Patanjali's Yoga Shastra. And Patanjali's Yoga Shastra is is a difficult text to read. It requires a a good education in Sanskrit to you know to be able to to read it. And of course, Brahmins would be the the ones receiving that education, and those that didn't. Uh, wouldn't have access to the text but i do think that we also see texts being written um that are much less learned in much 
sort of more basic Sanskrit, as well as texts in vernacular languages, such as Marathi, Old Hindi, and so forth, that probably had uh, a much broader audience and weren't just for an, a learned elite. And they indicate to us that, um, um, that you know, many other um, strata of India's society were practicing these physical techniques, were practicing Hatha Yoga. Um, and that was probably propagated by uh, many of the um, ascetic traditions. Um, and, and yeah, so I, I think basically with yoga, you, you, we can say that it permeated just about every level of India's society. But as it did so, it was interpreted and understood differently um, depending on the sources, depending on um, the access. So I don't think Patanjali yoga would have necessarily been um, fundamental to uh, lower caste uh, societies um, practicing yoga. Um, but then other types of yoga would have been um, undoubtedly accessible you know even like with buddhism with the you know quote unquote the, the three turnings with the different goals of nirvana versus enlightenment or buddha buddhahood it's like there, there's difference in the goal and so the the path is going to be slightly different based on that or like how we have these ascetics and then the, these other practitioners that aren't adhering to the aesthetic practices so even in like tibet you have Sankampa comes along, he's like, well, the visualization is the thing, not actually the engagement with the consort. Yes, yes. So the differences, the differences. So, you know, take liberation, for example, the, the, the overall sort of the overall similarity that you could see between many traditions is this idea of liberation from samsara, from freedom from suffering, if you like. And in a sense, you could say quite... Uh, blandly that all Indian religions and philosophies are aiming at the same thing and sort of just um, tick that off as a sort of a similarity. But it's when you start to go into the differences that I, I personally think it becomes much more interesting when you start to see that there are different uh, interpretations of liberation, um, liberation at death, liberation at life. Um, there's different theories about how the liberated state arises. Um, different ideas about how to achieve it um, and even if this the same or similar techniques are adopted the way that they're slightly modified or um, uh, or reinterpreted so I sort of feel that these traditions and it's the same with yoga traditions come alive when we start to talk more about the differences between them and um, you know and the changes that occurred over time rather than trying to look for you know a sort of perennial philosophy or you know the same thing in all traditions a sort of a kernel or a seed type of practice that, that that's often discussed so that's why I suppose I've turned to academia and pursued academia myself in trying to understand the history of yoga and uh, an Indian religion more broadly yeah, well, well, I'm grateful you have. It's unbelievable benefit you've you've cast. Um, oh, thank you. Thanks very much. Yeah, yeah. So, one, I guess, one last question since you at since you left with that, um, the difference. So, doing the hatha yoga, 
in in the central channel like with uh, trying to achieve mahamudra is this this from a buddhist perspective would this be the same as what's coming later with the hatha yoga because if we have this movement through buddhism mahamudra we find hatha in the kala chakra text gayu samaja text and then they're trying to attain the state which is called mahamudra mm. It's so yes, in hatha. Is this the same? Are they going? Are is that nuance the same, or is there a difference? Is there a difference here? Well, the similarity is that if you take Mahamudra as a meditative state, a sort of a no mind meditative state, um, well, it is very similar to the the goal of Hatha Yoga, which is Raja Yoga, and that's yeah. understood as a no mind meditative state. And of course, Hatha Yoga um, really relies upon a practice involving the central channel where blockages are cleared and prana is moved up through the central channel. And it's when prana reaches the top of the central channel that uh, this no mind meditative state occurs. So there is um, similarity on that level. Is there any last things that we haven't said that you would like to end on? Um. Well, for any of your listeners that uh, that are not aware of uh, my wife's uh, site, The Luminescent, and if they're interested in our research and, and want sort of bite-sized, digestible, um, uh, you know, pieces, uh, blog posts, if you like, that uh, on, on what might be interesting aspects of the practice of yoga and its history, then, you know, I'd encourage your listeners to go there to have a, to have a look at what we've written over the past 15 years. Mm. Um, also, yeah. many of my articles are available and can be freely downloaded from that site and also from academia.edu. Mm. Um, I have a book coming out in a couple of months. I hope it's gone to press. I'm just waiting for the, uh, for the publisher to finalize the front and back covers. And that uh, will be available at the Ecole Francaise in Pondicherry, South India. But I'm hoping it will uh, it will be open access and freely downloadable on the internet uh, one year after it's published. Mm -hmm. uh, so again, for any of your um, listeners that are looking for um, yeah, uh, for our research. The luminescence wonderful. I followed that for years, and I'll leave links in the show notes to all this. Oh, thank you. Well, this was such a pleasure meeting you. I appreciate you taking time on your vacation to talk to me. Well, thanks very much for the invitation. And, uh, and I hope it, it was uh, helpful and informative for, for your viewers. It was great. It was a pleasure. Thank you. <laughs>